Welcome to Mints on Air and Quiet Quarter, perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. In each episode of this podcast, I will be joined by an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. My guests will share their experiences in starting and running a business, investing in a business, and helping to support a business. I hope that my conversations with my friends will provide valuable advice to you, help those of you who are building a business to make it successful, and inspire those of you who are thinking about starting a new venture. My guest today is Reedy Terriel, CEO and co-founder of NextGenJ. Reedy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Reedy, you and I have known each other for nine years, shortly before we incorporated NextGenJane. What is the mission of NextGenJane? NextGenJane wants to bring precision medicine to women's health, whether that's through better diagnostics, better drug treatments, and we are doing it by providing molecular insight into female-born bodies. What stage of the corporate life cycle is the company at? You know, we incorporated in 2014, and we have now had multiple preferred financing rounds. And so I would say we are probably two years away from having a product on market. And what are next steps for the business in terms of developing that product? What needs to be done? What do you see as the the challenges and the opportunities for you as the CEO of the company? Probably the biggest uh, step for us to get this product on market is to finish one more clinical study. We have spent a lot of time developing our sample collection kit, developing our bioinformatic pipelines to do the analysis, and we've done quite a few clinical studies that have compared tampons from women who have condition X to women who do not have that, that condition. And so we actually have a classifier right now for a disease called endometriosis. It's a genomic classifier that allows us to call whether or not this woman has endometriosis just based on looking at the signals in her tampon that she mails into us. And the next pre-commercial study that we need to complete is to evaluate how this classifier works in women who are struggling with infertility. And so that's our big milestone that, that we're trying to hit over the next two years. And you mentioned that you have raised capital from outside investors. Could you talk to the extent it's been publicly disclosed already you know, the identity of the investors, if not specifically, then by, by type of investor, as well as the amount that you raised to date. Yes. So what is public is we've raised about $13 million in dilutive funding, and we've gotten about $2 million in non-dilutive funding. Our investors are, you know, really nice mix of institutional investors, so classic venture capital, um, some private equity funds, some hedge funds, as well as we try to be very deliberate about bringing on what we call super angels. And, you know, I'm sure that people listening to this podcast are familiar with what an angel is. Angel investor writes small checks and gets you either to bridge to another round or people that you collect money from initially in the beginning stages of your startup. For us, we try to get super angels that not necessarily write a big check, though that's always great, that these are angels that are very steeped in science and businesses around life science. And so they don't just bring capital to the table. They really bring their ability to give us advice on our clinical study design, on our science, you know, and are able to push us in ways that maybe an, an angel that doesn't have deep expertise in this area would not be able to do. And right now you are located in the Bay Area. But when we first met, you were at Harvard Business School as part of the Blavatnik Fellowship. Why did you decide 
to move the company to the Bay Area rather than stay in the Boston Cambridge area? So it's a it's a good question. The funny answer, uh, the superficial answer, is is that it was right after the big snowstorm in 2015. I don't know <laughs> if people in Boston remember spring 2015. It snowed basically straight into June. I mean, you know, that's it. That's slight hyperbole, but it was it was late. And I believe there were three weekends in a row that everybody was trapped at home because they were snowed in. And if that isn't a sign from God to leave Boston, I don't know what is. <laughs> so that, that's probably the superficial reason. The real reason was that um, at the time, we had, we had actually tried pitching to all the classic life science VCs in Boston. And the direct impression I got was that, that they were still recovering from the investments they had made in diagnostics in the early aughts. And there had been a lot of big checks written and, and uh, not a lot of exits in those diagnostics. And so they were a little bit gun shy of investing in you know, another diagnostics play. Um, and so you know, it was very much a biotech town. It probably still is to a great extent. But the advice I was given was you might have better luck in getting people to invest in diagnostics if you go out to the West Coast. And that was what originally motivated the exploration out here. Well, I can understand both answers to the question. I think that despite the fact that I've been in the Boston area my whole life, as you know, the weather is difficult. So winter like that could definitely motivate a founder like you to relocate, but certainly the investment environment is something that each founder and entrepreneur has to think about in terms of where is the best place to raise capital for them. Speaking of the, the landscape of, of the environment, could you talk about where you see the life sciences industry generally and, and specifically the diagnostic space because that's where Jane focuses? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a topic dear to our heart because one of the things you have to always figure out is, you know, how do you make money in this space before you really get interest from investors to write you big checks? And in diagnostics in particular, that's hard. The feedback that I've always gotten is um, diagnostics often take the same amount of capital as drugs. You, know, you have to do big clinical trials to show how accurate, how sensitive, how specific your diagnostic is. And if you hit you know, an inflection point that's valuable, so your diagnostic works, and you hit an inflection point that is valuable for drugs, your drug works, the exit potential and landscape for a drug is just much more interesting and much more lucrative than a equally adequate diagnostic. And so, you know, while they both carry technical and scientific risk, they both carry regulatory risk, there is less consumer risk in drugs, right? If, you're, if your drug works better, is superior to the existing modalities, the existing first-line treatments, you will get reimbursed. You know, people will want to order it and patients will want to take it. Versus if you go through those same hurdles for diagnostics, at the end of the day, you now have another hurdle, which is you have to convince insurance companies that it is in their best interest to actually reimburse this diagnostic. And for that, that, that's a really complicated and tough sell, even over the last 20 years. And the part of the reason is, is because in the United States, we have a commercial insurance system that's based on employers, right? You get your insurance, health insurance through your employer. And so it turns out that most people change their jobs frequently enough that insurance companies assume they will only be covering you for 12 to 24 months. And so if they're only covering you 12 to 24 months, they want to see whatever you, you know, you're selling them, save them money in that 12 to 24 months. And that's hard. That's just, a, that's a difficult pitch to say, you know, especially for someone like Next Gen Jane, where we are 
providing non-invasively insight to tell you that you might have a pretty serious condition called endometriosis. In the year that you find out that you have that disease, you will likely engage with the healthcare system, right? You'll probably get it treated. You might have surgery to get it treated. You go, you'll go on drugs to get it treated. If you've been struggling with infertility, you might decide to go get infertility treatment through IVF. Um, and so more than likely, your healthcare costs temporarily will spike up. And so, you know, because investors know that, that insurance companies are the gatekeepers determining whether or not you get reimbursement, and they have a very short-term lens as to whether or not they'll do it, diagnostics just becomes a bear and difficult to fund. As I listen to you talk about reimbursement and insurance, I wonder how much those issues actually drive your decision-making as a founder first and then as a CEO in either forming a business or running and operating that business as it grows. In other words, do you make decisions about what direction to take your business, what problems specifically to try to solve, for example, helping with endometriosis? How much of it is your desire to solve the problem that you've identified versus how much are you influenced in your decision-making about which problem to solve based on issues like insurance and reimbursement? Oh, it's it's such an interesting and complicated question. I would say that the right way to do it, and I'm putting right in well, air quotes, the right way to do it, obviously, is start, start at the end. Start at what is going to be reimbursable. What's a problem that insurance companies want to solve? And I say, and I put that in air quotes to say that's the right way to build something that has a higher likelihood of getting paid for. But is it the right problem to solve? I'm not sure. I think if I had had that lens 10 years ago, done the homework that I've done over the last few years, I might not have taken on this challenge. And I think that that would have been the wrong move. And so, you know, for me, irrationality is some, it plays a role in entrepreneurial decision making. In my perspective, you should not be making a decision to say what fits into the existing system of how things work. If you are doing that as an entrepreneur, you are probably making incremental changes, but you're not working to break that system down if it's not working. Endometriosis is just such a great example of that. If you, if you look at it from the market dynamics perspective, finding a way to easily tell women that they have endometriosis is not necessarily going to be well reimbursed out the gate because it, it actually is going to be adding cost onto the insurance carrier's book of business. However, it is an extremely important disease that has sequelae that are way beyond, you know, what you might think first blush, right? If you have endometriosis, obviously, you know that it has a high impact on quality of life, but actually often leads to problems with fecundity, as well as new research is coming out that shows that if you have endometriosis, you have 1.7 times more likelihood of getting ovarian cancer. So, you know, huge impact on on major health milestones in life. So should one care that the condition is going to be hard to get reimbursed or should one care that finding out that you have, have endometriosis as soon as possible is the most critical thing that you can do, you know, for this particular disease state? I think that some of it, and now, now you know, that we've progressed, I would say early on, I, I paid less attention to whether or not it was reimbursable. I said, this is an important problem to solve and we have to solve it. The closer we get to market, it is something that plays a bigger and bigger role. And the way that I try to tackle it is to, to be creative, to say, you know, what are other ways we can prove the utility of this diagnostic to big carriers? And what are other ways that we could get people to pay for this that do not involve the big carriers? 
Um, and that is how I, I address this problem. Well, it's a fascinating topic. I certainly hope that you're able to fulfill your goals in terms of helping women who have endometriosis and, and hopefully the, the system, the healthcare system that's supporting the, the process will, will be helpful in terms of reimbursement and insurance coverage as well along the way. I hope so. Talking about formation of NextGen Jane several years ago, this was the first time you had started a company, correct? Actually, no, it's my second time. I'm shocked that we haven't shared stories around this first, which was I actually took my MIT thesis and tried to launch my first company in 2010. So what happened? Well, it was uh, two years after the derivative crisis, or maybe just one year. So it was the markets were terrible, you know, similar to what they are now, actually. <laughs> and I was actually pitching a, a direct-to-consumer genetic product to people in India. And I was fundraising in the United States. And so I was taking on two big challenges, which was that direct-to-consumer genetics was still very new. I mean, people knew about 23andMe. And investors were like, let's wait and see how that does. There was a little bit of hesitation on, on doing DTC genetics, even, you know, especially back then because it was so new and the model was unproven. And because I was mar you know, targeting this product directly to people in India, pitching to investors in the United States who don't have that much familiarity with that India as a consumer base, that was also a challenge. And so I did it for about a year. And I got some advice to say, if you want to reduce one of these burdens, maybe move to India and pitch to investors in India. And they, you'll still have to get them over the DTC genetics pump, but at least they understand the Indian consumer. And I wasn't quite ready to move to India. So I accepted an opportunity working at the Broad that gave me a lot of access to the things I loved, like managing a large genetic study in emerging markets with a $10 million budget, which felt like a, a startup budget and put that that first startup on pause while I uh, took this opportunity at the bridge. Well, I'm glad I specifically asked that question because I definitely learned something interesting about your career. After going through that experience and facing the challenges that you had with the first attempt to move a business forward, why didn't you continue to work in other capacities as opposed to starting NextGen Jane? What, what made you want to keep trying again? Oh, you know, I have this theory that it takes about two years to recover from a startup failure. But if you're an entrepreneur and it's in your blood, you're going to keep coming back to it because <laughs> that's where you find joy. And so I took a two-year break. I did something else. And, you know, after that, I was ready to, ready to go back into the terrain. And now that you've had more than one experience for purposes of this question, what did you learn about the process over those two experiences now in terms of starting a company? Yeah. You know, one big one that I learned in the first experience that absolutely influenced how I did the second startup was you have to have a co-founder. <laughs> the first time around, I was doing it solo, and there's just so much required in getting a startup off the ground. And whether it is you physically need help to go through all the things that are required to get it off the ground, or you emotionally need stability and like someone to talk through your day with and someone to share that. That lived experience is pretty dramatic. And a co-founder that is doing it with you can make the difference between a company getting off the ground and not. And for me, it did make the difference in exactly that. So when I started Next Gen Jane, I was, you know, still in communication with some of the scientists that I had worked with at the Broad. And one of them in particular, Stephen Geyer, we had spent a lot of time in Sierra Leone for this, you know, GWAS that we were doing. And we had had so many great experiences on the ground 
as you can imagine, trying to do genomic clinical research on the ground in remote villages in Sierra Leone, you'll run into a lot of challenges. And we did. And it was an opportunity for both of us to observe how we dealt with extremely difficult situations. And I think that at the end of it, we realized that we, we were able to navigate them well, not just independently, but in concert with each other, that we were able to make decisions together that we both agreed with that, that didn't leave us walking away saying, I never want to see this person again. And so when I was working on Next Gen Jane, Stephen was my natural thought partner in saying, hey, you know, there's this, what do you think about menstrual effluence? Why is it that there's not that much genomic research for it? You know, what are some challenges in, in collecting the sample type at home that I was, was using him as a thought partner and, and you know, was able to convince him over time this is actually the best, ne best next career step for him and to, to join on board. And I would absolutely say that that made the difference between my staying power in, in, getting Next Gen Jane to the point where I got funded versus my experience in my first startup. That's not surprising. I think that with all of what I've learned over the years about what it takes to start a business and run it, it takes a lot of hands, a lot of minds. So I'm um, starting with a co-founder, at least one is a, is a good piece of advice. Is there other advice that you would pass on to people who have never started a company before other than Build the, build the team of co-founders? Yeah. I mean, there's two. I think one question that comes up is if you've never started a, done a startup before, you know, there's a lot of fear of, I don't know what I'm walking into and maybe I don't have the skill set for it. And I would say that becoming a good entrepreneur is absolutely a practicum. You know, I went to business school and I took entrepreneurship classes. And in fact, I specialized like my, many of my elective courses was, were on entrepreneurship and startup. And I would say that they were very useful and yet nothing prepares you for doing it. And so even the things that you explicitly learned. So we explicitly learned deal terms in you know, business school, like how do you evaluate a good term sheet? You know, what are the things that you negotiate on? And yet, you know, when a term sheet hits you in the face, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is a lot of legalese. I don't want to be you know, stepping into something that has deep consequences that which I don't understand yet. And so you end up taking small crash courses in everything, things that you you are familiar with and things that you are completely unfamiliar with again and again and again. And so one big piece of advice there is, is that because it is a practicum, the best way to prepare for it is just to do it. Just go in and do it and you will learn along the way and you will become better and better. And the second is, is that there are absolutely resources for you in this process. And I think that some of us forget that. And, and there's so many of them. One is, is that a startup is like a set of, of many, many contracts, right? Whether these are contracts with your employees, contracts with your investors, contracts with your collaborators, contracts with universities in which you're out licensing technology that is the foundation of your company. And so because you're papering so many things, hats off to you, Josh, because you've been my partner in this for so many years, is get good lawyers. You will not regret that decision in making sure that everything is papered over in the appropriate way. It seems like overkill in the beginning when you're starting out. And then years later, you're like, thank God I had that contract in place. Thank God I looked over that, you know, carefully. All of those things become very relevant. But, you know, outside of your partners like counsel that, that, that you pay to work with you are mentors who have done it before. It's an incredible asset. Someone who is who is actually, you know, on their fourth, fifth startup, they are the best resource for, for mistakes that they have made, that they have learned from, from to tell you immediately, I see what you're walking into. 
I would advise you not to do that. So, you know, having a, a good bench of mentors who, who really have specifically startup experience is critical. And then I would say, do not forget your peers that are on this journey because they are literally going through exactly what you are going through. And they're really good resources for current information. You know, I just spoke to this fund that, you know, and they told me X. I just spoke to whatever fund, and I, I don't actually think that they have money left. I just spoke to this fund. You know, I had a bad experience or a great experience. These, this is all really critical information that you could probably only get from your peers who are literally going through the fundraising process or, you know, some other process with you. So those would be my comments in terms of advice for people thinking about starting this journey. Well, good advice, sweetie. What would you say has been most rewarding about this journey? It is absolutely seeing the scaffolding become a house, you know, and taking something from ideation and executing it to a product. I think that, you know, you, again, when I say scaffolding, you have like sample collection kit that can collect the sample. Is that a product? No. Right. You have some sequences you've generated that, that show promising data, right? Oh, it's cool. Like, you know, the genomic information we're getting from menstrual blood is different from whole blood, like substantively different. That's cool. That's just scaffolding. You know, there's no house there yet. There are people that are contacting us that are giving us information about their health. That's cool. We're getting clinical trial participation, scaffolding. That's not a product. I think when you begin to see a sample being mailed to a research participant, and you are seeing them tell you the result of their surgery as to whether or not they have endometriosis, and you are looking at how your classifier is calling it and it matches. I think that has been the most rewarding to say, wow, I see the house. This is not just random scaffolding. There is a house here. It's really great to hear. Obviously, you as a founder, you you set out to solve problems and in this case, solve health problems for women. And you're moving to that point, which is really exciting to see. As the CEO of NextGen Jane, what advice would you have for someone who's never been a CEO? I think I, my advice for a first-time CEO, maybe more for entrepreneurs, would be to balance vision with execution. I think that our appetite for vision is very large. You start out and you really want to solve all the problems. And we did, and to a certain extent still do. And I remember an investor initially hearing our pitch and saying, this is one tampon to solve it, solve it all. And I, you know, it made me pause. I think that he was lightly trying to suggest we had a lot of things on our product pipeline map and that they would maybe take longer than we were thinking or estimating. So it's great to have vision because people always want to see a platform or an opportunity to have multiple shots on goal. All, all of those are good things. And yet, What's even better is showing execution and progress towards one thing coming to market and showing commercial traction. Rady, could you talk about what your typical day as a CEO is like and talk about how you spend your time, what do you focus on most and what keeps you up at night? My day starts at 4 a.m. Um, and the reason it starts that early is because I have a toddler. And if I don't wake up that early, I actually won't have any time for myself. And so I get up, I do yoga. And I answer emails while I drink coffee. And that allows me to clean up my inbox. So, you know, anything that was pressing, any slacks that came in about things that need to be addressed immediately or semi-urgently, I try to address right away. We have partners and collaborators in India. And so oftentimes they will be wrapping up their day and have either synthesis or analyses that they have provided that I can take a look at as I'm starting my day. 
And then I will go in, physically go into work, usually here some sometime between 7 and 7.30. And I like that because I'm the early bird in the office and most people will show up somewhere between 8.30 and 9.30. And I actually like the quietness. I like to be at my desk with my computer and all my big screens and no one be here. And that allows me to, to continue to, to, to be productive. But, you know, I've, I'm not you know, that, that like hour and a half to two hours before, before my meetings start. I try not to, you know, I've answered all my emails. I try to focus on things like that require 90 minutes to two hours of concentrated time, whether that's reviewing a contract or reading a paper or responding to someone who's done an analysis that I have to be very thoughtful about. And then the meetings start and it's, you know, it's a, it's a roller coaster usually of four to five hours of meetings, whether they are internal meetings to, to talk through patent strategy or to talk through how we're going to take our menstrual ontology and map it onto our actual database, or there are meetings with the science team to talk through what are expected experiments that we want done over the next four to six weeks, or meetings with my clinical team to figure out what's the likely incoming sample load we need to process. We try to make decisions that, that allow people to go on with their work streams and then I, I probably have 30 minutes to an hour at the end of my day where I am, again, answering emails that have come in. So, you know, now there's there's another backlog and trying to make sure that people have what they need from me before I log off for the day. You talked about being a mother as part of the answer to that question. How do you manage your time? Is it the discipline and scheduling that you talked about to make sure that you start your day doing the things that you want to do that'll they'll help you get through the day and to take care of your child. There are other things that you try to do to make sure that you're able to balance the different responsibilities that you have. Yes, absolutely. I would say there are a few things that have been critical. One is just good care. Uh, you need someone to be able to help. And so I have a lovely nanny who is with her 10 hours a day when I am not, and I trust her and just an incredible and necessary asset if, if you are doing hard things that require your full, full attention, which Nextgen Jane does for me. And I would say that the other thing when I think about balance is I was, I'm a late mom is what I consider myself. You know, I had, I had a kid when I was 41. And so I always smile because I think that when you're having kids that at that stage in your life, you are really deliberate about wanting a kid. Like you're taking on a toddler at both the peak of your career and when you're probably the most lacking in strength. <laughs> <laughs> And I say that after having pulled my back this weekend and picking her up to say, you know, you're, you're, you're making a very conscious choice to say, I want this child. And so part of my balance is just getting the opportunity to spend time with her. And so I make sure at the end of my day, I have three hours that, you know, we cook dinner together, we take walks, we chat, we read books, and I'm able to, to put her down to sleep. And I think that one of the things that the reason I mentioned that is that that's a full day. Right. And so, so doing 10 hours at work and then having a few hours with your kid. And now, you know, if, if you want any chance at sleep, what gets cut out? And, and that really is an important thing to acknowledge is that certain things have to be cut out. And so, you know, I don't socialize much during the week. And again, one of the things that is important to me, yoga, for example, I have to wake up at 4 a.m. in order to even do it. And so you're, you're just, you're constantly making these trade offs to say, would I rather do? an extra, you know, dinner with my friends or do I want to sleep more or do I want to make sure that I have time for my yoga? So I think that being comfortable with those trade-offs and saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to have trade-offs and I'm, I'm not going to be able to actually do all of the things I, I used to pre-being a mom 
if you have that acceptance, it's manageable. Well, you talked about having less strength, maybe physically, given that you're a little older now than you once were really, like all of us, but you have a lot of energy. I can hear that in your voice and, and, and the back doesn't seem to be bothering you right now. So <laughs> happy to hear all of that. What was the process like for you seeking NextGenGene's first round of financing? You know, it's interesting. I, I would say that that some of what influenced our first round of financing, there's a thread there that has been consistent throughout. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we were when we raised our first institutional funding in 2016, this was our series seed of two million dollars, or you know, our first big checks in, and we were very new. We had some data, not a lot of data. And so one of the things we found was that there are many investors that you know specialize in diagnostics or specialize in genomics, but the overwhelming majority of investors will not necessarily have a background in diagnostics, regulated products, complex products, heavily genomics products, what have you. And so we found that it was very useful to either have collaborations or things that signal credibility from people who are in a position to signal that credibility to motivate a fundraising event. And so for us in 2016, for that first institutional round, it was that we joined the Illumina Accelerator and we were selected to be part of the Illumina Accelerator. And so Illumina, as you probably know, is one of the world's largest sequencing companies. And so most people, when they generate data about DNA or RNA, or you know, usually going to be using an Illumina sequencer. It was really beneficial to be part of the accelerator for the simple fact that they gave give you carte blanche access to their sequencing capacity and you're able to generate terabytes of data, but also that Illumina selected you, right? They're the experts in genomics and they said you should be part of this accelerator. And so we really feel like that was a triggering event for that first capital raise. After that first round of financing, what was the process of fundraising like for you? In, in subsequent raises, has it been different simply because you had your first round? Does that mean it's a lot easier to do once you've done it once for a company? You know, I wish I could say yes. And I had a mentor once, what I like to jokingly say, she tricked me. She told me when I was raising the seed round that the seed round was the hardest. And then when I was raising the A, you know, it was very difficult. And she said, oh, don't worry, the A is the hardest. You know, I, I took note. I was like, I swear she told me the seed was the hardest. And then when I closed the A and we, we were raising our next round, she said that the next round was the hardest. And I finally caught on that they're all hard. <laughs> <laughs> and she was just trying to make sure that, that I could get to that milestone and keep pushing through. But they're all hard. So what would you advise an entrepreneur other than to be prepared for it to be difficult? How would you counsel someone who's either never been through it or would like to hear from you on what your experience has been like in terms of what they should look out for and, and what should they attempt to do as part of the fundraising process that you've worked? The emotional piece of advice is, you know, have a, a text group of hype friends. What I mean by hype friends are these are friends that hype you up. You're doing great. And, you know, when you do make a mistake, it doesn't matter. That was a small mistake in the grand scheme of things. If you came out of a bad meeting, don't worry. They're going to miss the opportunity. They'll be sorry in the end. You know, if you had a good moment, amazing. We believe in you. You're going to bring this home. You're going to land the plane. Um, because that is really, because you get so many no's, and that's just part of the process. You're going to get more no's than you are yeses, that you need a, an entire, you know, shadow system in place of keeping your spirits up. Well, we all need people to lift us up in life. I didn't think about it in the context of pitching 
not business to investors, but it makes sense that it would be as equally applicable as it is there in other spheres of life. Before you go, Reedy, I'd like to ask your perspective as a woman of color to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the life sciences industry. What have you seen? What do you feel is the current state of the, of the biotech industry in those areas? I have one comment and one anecdote to sort of explain that comment. My comment is it's always looks harder than it is to reach a point where you do have good representation and people feel included and they feel welcome at the table, which is should be the goal for any industry, any society, is, is that people who are different feel welcome at, at tables of influence and power. My anecdote is, is that there is an incredible conference that is put on every year by MedTech Women. It's called MedTech Vision. And uh, for anybody who's not familiar with it, you should check it out. It is always an opportunity to meet, you know, really incredible people all dedicated to impacting and shifting healthcare in, in important ways. And I've been attending this conference for years. And one of the things that I have noticed consistently that it has gotten more and more diverse. And I mean that the types of people that are not just in, in attendance, because that is also increased in terms of diversity, but the people on the panels. You know, you might have gone to the conference many, many years ago, and you might have seen some, you know, women of color on the panels. What might have been noticeable is just that how few there were. And now you go, and I just attended this fall, and it was so incredible to witness how many different panels had so many diverse people that were talking about their experiences. And that was equally reflected in, in the conference attendance. And so I was talking to some of the organizers and, and commenting on them, to, you know, to, to give them their props to say that was, I've been attending this conference for years and I want you to know that I've noticed um, that it gets more and more diverse every single year. And they said that, thank you. And they said, We're, we are trying. We are being intentional about that. That's not happening, you know, out of the ether. We are being deliberate and, and setting an intention of trying to make that kind of change. And it, it was really encouraging me, to me because if you set the intention that that's the type of community that you want, that that's the type of, and you, know, you, could, you could broaden this out, that's the type of clinical trial that you want, that's the type of company you want to build, that's the type of conference you want to build, that you can make that intention happen and make it, make it a reality. Well, that's a, it's good to hear you, you've seen that improvement in the conference over time and, and also a hopeful message that you just shared. For my last question, I'd like to ask you about career generally. What advice would you give to someone just starting out in their career today in the biotech industry? I would say two things. One is I would actually encourage people to start their careers in a big company. There's probably some bias in there. I did. I worked in Big Pharma for a few years, and I think that having that experience is a nice foil. You will either learn that you love it and you are an operator that thrives in those environments, or you will learn that you hate it and that you are stifled by bureaucratic environments because the bigger the company gets, naturally, the more bureaucratic it gets. And that's a good data point for you to learn at the start of your career because that should shape how you pursue opportunities there on out. And as a bonus, one of the great things about working at a big company is that you actually, there, there are things that big companies do really well, structure, you know, organization, uh, Gantt charts, you know, following things through, execution. 
And so there is an opportunity to learn some of those professional organizing skills that will serve you well in your entire career. So I think someone starting out, I would say, actually go work in a big company for a few years. Good advice. Thank you, Reedy, for sharing that with our audience and for being on our show today. You mentioned earlier in the program that we've been partners together on the Next Gen Jane journey for many years now. And I just wanted to let you know that it's been my pleasure to be your partner in that process. And I look forward to the future with you and Next Gen Jane. Thanks so much, Josh. Same. And to our audience, until next time on Client Quarter, keep on building. Keep on building.